somewhere else is an essential form of thinking. It changes the way we view the world and the way we view our own homes. That's why we're here. We're here to investigate the stories in our own backyards. To talk to the people who live here. And work here, volunteer here, love here, restore here. Also that we can travel back outside a place and see it from a different perspective. That's what we are doing today. I'm Melissa Wade. And I'm Abby Newhouse. And we're here unpacking what we've seen and experienced over the last few weeks. Traveling to a sinking island and talking citrus groves and trash heaps. Finding connections and analyzing our changing perspectives on the great wide world around us. Today, we unpack. Not just our suitcases, but our investigation in where we've been. And where we go from here. It has been a while since we went to these places. What have you found about, I don't know, the things that you researched? Deadlines, your GMOs. I find myself saying a lot to people that I talk to, I'll say, oh yeah, I did a podcast on that. And it makes me feel <laughs> very much in the conversation out there in the world. And <laughs> I am doing shameless plugs of the podcast at all yep. moments. I know, I find that... Too. I mean, especially because like for these episodes themselves, like so many of them are applicable to everyday life that I just keep bringing it up. Like I just went to Utah to visit my family. And as soon as I saw the mountains, I was just like, I looked at all the houses just, you know, getting higher and higher. And I was just like thinking about Smith Island and living close to disaster and all these deadlines and stuff and I was just talking the ears off of everybody I was like why are they building higher like that's probably a 12 you know fire zone that they're in but it's just for the views and then we're like making fun of it together you know nice I've also been doing some reading there's this belief that during COVID because we were pulled out of our normal time frame and we didn't have these like clocks, these societal clocks telling us where to be, when to be there, when we ate lunch, when to get things done. We didn't have our human deadlines around us, right? Your boss wasn't walking past your office, like giving you that nod that made you get things done. Procrastination in our country has gotten worse. Yeah. (laughs) I read about how it's not a logical decision in your brain. It's an emotional decision because you're like, I got to get this thing done. Logically, you just do it. Emotionally, though, we're like, oh, but I don't want to. I want to do this other thing that makes me feel better. And we needed that during the pandemic. You know, but then other, on the other side, people would be like, use this to your advantage. Like, you have all this time. You can get that project done you've been wanting to do for so long. And it's like, there's this kind of like two sides to this annoying coin that was like, on the one hand, do all the self-care that you possibly can. On the other hand, grind, 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 you know. It's like, of course, everybody with like these two voices in and out each ear were just kind of like, I'm just going to sit here and uh, (laughs) I'll decide whether or not I'm going to do something later. I think that goes along with deadlines. I think that goes along with, you know, understanding how we fit inside this time frame, whether it's a climate time frame, whether it's your sinking island or you have an article to write by Friday. It's this thing where we have to analyze what we're for like what we're here for and like how we want to use our brains and our bodies in all of our efforts to get things done. Totally. I know you hear more and more people living these like unconventional lifestyles and 
you know, maybe that was always happening or maybe it's just a product of like seeing this on social media that makes it seem so normal and um, prevalent these days. But yeah, people are like getting vans, you know, buses, whatever, traveling around the country, like just doing all this stuff to just kind of like you're saying, like understand what their place is and how they can make the most out of like a life within a system that just asks you to like sit at a desk for 40 hours a week. And I think people, yeah, like it, it opened, the pandemic opened a bunch of cracks in like an already very cracked system. It's like people just started to see just the space of time to kind of re reevaluate your own, your own deadline is like morbid as that sounds, right? It's like you, you know that there's like an end date at some point and it's like, well, what can we do before that happens to make the most out of this situation, you know? That viewpoint of standing right there with death all around kind of makes you reevaluate time and what you do with it for sure. Definitely. And I think like that's kind of that part about Smith Island actually that I like can't be too judgy about is that like so many people were moving out there specifically during the pandemic because it gave them a place to just be away from so many people. And so they just, they could go there for this escape. You're like in nature, you're doing things with your life that you want to be doing, right? Being connected to the earth a little bit more. And then, you know, just living in a beautiful place for the time that you do have, you know, like that was Freddie's whole story. The one with like his wife who had, you know, PTSD. And that's why they moved out there. It was like, we just want to respite. Like, that's what we want to do with the rest of our lives is like, just live peacefully. It doesn't sound like the worst thing right that's all i think most people want is a peaceful life yeah and i i've saw i've seen some like bad press about the residents of smith island being climate deniers and not that i don't think climate deniers aren't in existence they do exist however i wonder if there is a fine line between denying climate change altogether and Ignoring it? Is that the right word? That also sounds like a negative word, but also just like living out the time you have left, like not hurting the environment further. Like they're not out there building oil refineries. They're not doing that. They're not, you know, finding ways to harm the planet. Mm -hmm. There's like this fine line between acknowledging what's going on and your role in it, but also not dying of anxiety when you think about it. Yeah. That is a fine line. And it's a line that can mess with your psyche if you're jumping. I feel like I'm constantly just jumping over it and back. Like, like sometimes I'll be like, eh, doesn't matter. And then the next moment was like, that mattered so much, Melissa. How dare you do that? Right. Um, and so you're constantly like policing yourself. But also, you know, like you say, like thinking of those who have more power, have more say and how they're not doing what they're supposed yeah. to be doing. You know, you, you understand that a little does help if we all do a little, right? Um, but you see a huge problem and you don't have an easy fix button. Like everyone just wants that easy fix button on your desk that you're just like, boop, yeah. fixed it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, 100%. We all do. I was trying to like look up some some updates to Smith Island and and I found their um, Facebook group page. It says in ca all capital letters, 
We ain't going nowhere. That's the Facebook page of Smith Island, the island's Facebook page. It's Yeah, it's Smith Island United. So it's that group that's working to um, preserve the island. And it's just, it's, you know, it's cute. It's lovely. It, like all the posts are kind of like cleanup is moved to this week because Stephen can't get his truck here. And, you know, it's like things like that. Like it's just, it just is this microcosm, this tiny little community just trying to do what they can. In a way they are doing some of the more effective deadline methods, right? Like they are extending its life by doing certain things. It doesn't mean that it's going to be safe forever. According to one of the interviews, it said that they, you know, preserved it for maybe 10 or 15 years in its current state. Right. Talking about microcosms, like the the beauty of a microcosm is that we watch it as fascinated viewers from the outside. And we can see ourselves as a larger community within that microcosm. Like we are all facing these impending changes to our environment. I think the way that they're responding is quite quaint, right? We're, we ain't going anywhere. We're still here. We're this tiny community. We work together. We stand behind each other and we do our best with what we have left, with what we have. Mm-hmm. And and to add another decade, that's admirable in my book. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'd say they're like less of climate deniers and more of just like, we know, we know, stop telling, you know what I mean? Like, okay, thanks for bringing that up again. We're, we're aware. When you're really close to seeing a drastic change in your environment, maybe talking about the grand scheme of climate change isn't the right outlook for you. Like your outlook is Smith Island. I am here. You keep you there. Now I feel really bad for us like invading their island and talking to them. But I think like you're right. Like at a certain point, us little people, this is all all we can do is the little things in our own communities. Like until these big corporations and governments and everything get their act together, you know, you just kind of have to take care of what's right in front of you. So they're doing okay. Yeah. Don't worry about Smith Island. They've got it. I mean, care about them. Keep eating their cake. Yes. Yes, keep going. Keep visiting. A destination, not just a topic of discussion. Yes. (laughs) Okay, so speaking of fixes, have you heard any news about citrus greening? Yes and no. So they are trying a few new things. They're working with something called a peptide solution. Peptides are short chains of amino acids linked by peptide bonds. You can find these peptides in like different plants and use them for other plants to see if it helps them build up some resiliency. But basically they were trying to use some peptides from limes and and I think some from spinach leaves to kind of see how that would affect the citrus. And I think they did see some positive results for a while, but overall it's not a long-term solution because the peptides don't get to the root like literally so it can like I think it can help like oranges on their own but not the full tree which is obviously a huge issue and this is UC Riverside research and initially the treatment seemed to be going great the treated trees had very low bacteria counts they were spraying at regular intervals and rather than all 10 treated trees testing positive for the disease only three of them did and none of them died Whereas by comparison, unsprayed trees were like nine out of 10 were positive uh, for the bacterium. So yeah, it's another one of those kind of like band-aid solutions. 
which is helpful. It's just, yeah, overall, not quite where we need it to be. Other researchers at the University of California are attempting to find those disease trees and remove them by very specific testing. There's not going to be any one magic silver bullet that's going to completely eradicate the disease. So we need to have early detection right now in order to stop the disease from spreading. With our work, we're trying to be able to detect this disease very early on before it's detectable using the DNA-based methods. And we've proven that once the bacterium comes into the tree, the entire tree puts out a response and we can detect that response using our technology. And this is what we're hoping to move forward to help combat this disease, essentially identifying trees and then having those trees removed. I mean, long-term, what they say they need is citrus that is resistant to this bacteria that can no longer be infected by the They pathogen. are working on some GM strategies as well, looking to, there's a couple different prongs to this. One of them is just grafting new citruses that are a little bit more resilient. And then the other part is, yeah, like some more GM strategies of new seeds, kind of like, yeah, building up that resiliency in that way. And they're saying that it's just gonna take a while to see the effects, to see if it actually works or not. It's interesting though, to tie in ge like genetically modified seeds, um, because I talked to Michael Doctor from Mitiera Tortilla Company in Massachusetts, and he reminded me of the nuance of genetic modification, right? There, there is this whole world of big agribusiness using their seeds to kind of control agricultural profit, to control farmers, right? We saw that a lot when we talked about corn. But there's also this promise in genetic modification that in a lab, rather than grafting, um, you change the seed, you add something to the seed that makes it hardier, makes the overall plant resistant to a disease like this. The technology itself of genetic modification, you know, I just think it's really important that we get smart about how we talk about it to the public because the technology is absolutely bastardized in the case of GMO corn. Mm. It's absolutely dangerous. It's absolutely done by Monsanto to, you know, to their benefit and the, and the deprivation of everybody else involved. But the technology itself, if it were done, you know, by a more, more benevolent actors, is, is an essential technology that we're going to need. That's like a tale as old as time, too. Like, you've seen that in so many movies and so many stories. It's like always about this big business, like putting little people out of out of business. And that's and I think I believe that that's not good. And that's something we should regulate more and not let them have so much power and not let them win just by paying a bunch of money to the people who decide if they win or lose. You know, like, that's something that feels nefarious to me and it's something that should be pointed out. Which also gets me onto my rant about people being afraid of bias. <laughs> I feel like that's something that has popped up a lot lately. A listener talked to me about that episode about GMOs and they just said, I think you were a little harsh on GMOs and as much as I didn't want to be, I told them I was having a hard time not being mm -hmm. against Monsanto, not being against the large corporation that wields its power at the detriment of small farmers, at the detriment of a whole ancestral Mexican cuisine. Like, 
there's something built inside of me that I don't know, bursts out a dislike of big business. Like I'm just like, <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of this story that Jake tells me. Jake's my husband. Sorry, everyone. I think it's like a parable, but anyway, it's about this fisherman, and he's just on the side of the water, just playing his guitar, and like he's he's you know just gone out and caught a bunch of fish, brought them back, sold them to a restaurant or something. Anyway, like this big kind of developer comes down and he's like, you could expand this business. Like, look at you go. You, you know, you have a good client. Other people would buy from you. You, you should buy another boat. Like, they use this money to expand and stuff. And the guy's just like, mm, I don't really feel like it. And the guy's like, well, think of all you could do, though, if you expanded. And he's like, well, I think if I expanded and got a lot of money, I would go fishing once a day and come back and play my guitar on the beach. And that's like exactly what he's doing, right? So it's just it's just funny. It's like it's one of those <laughs> I don't know. Just like this our our want for growth and like to just keep moving, keep moving, like grind, grind, do all that you can, you know, is really sometimes like at a detriment to us, to our livelihoods, to the people around us. I think there is an opposing force to the investor who came to that fisherman. There is the slow food movement and the local food movement. And I think what's beautiful about both of these movements is that they celebrate providing for your own community. They celebrate making a great non-GMO tortilla that lasts just 10 days on the shelf and providing it to the people around you. And I think that's what inspired me about what Michael Doctor had to say about that business. You to your restaurant in Hadley was making their own tortillas by hand. We kind of encouraged them to, to, to maybe sell tortillas and they said, well, why don't we get it by a tortilla machine? They drove down to Mexico and bought a big tortilla oven and hauled it back and uh, started making uh, some really good local tortillas. We, my role and our role at the time was to try to find some good local Hadley corn that was you know, not GMO and organic and, and tasty and, and local. Their tortilleria burned to the ground after a few months of production. Jorge um, and his wife Dora lost everything at that point, and, but they still, you know, had made a commitment to some local farmers to buy some corn. And they and their few staff people kept making the tortillas by hand. And Jorge and I looked at each other and said, "This is this could be something because people really like these tortillas. They're not like any other junk that you can buy in the supermarket that are loaded with loaded with preservatives. Um, can't even taste the corn in it because they, you know, they're so highly preserved." This idea of a local quality good product is not only important to me, Tierra. It's something that has been pioneered throughout the New England region. And in Hadley, which is an old farming community, um, the, the, you know, the farmers have always been, been, been treated well. You know, mm -hmm. the people, people look out for our interests in town. I also got the chance to talk to Danielle Dolan of Macienda about what her company does and how it matters to the quality of the corn product they're sharing with restaurants and consumers across our country. Macienda was founded in 2014 by Jorge Gaviria, our CEO. Um, he was working at Blue Hill at Stone Barns at the time and with a Mexican-Cuban background was really thinking about the corn food way and, and where we were at that time and kind of what it could be or what it is in other parts of the world, specifically Mexico. 
Macienda works closely with farmers in Mexico so that they can sell non-GM corn and corn of the heritage variety. She told me about a work trip she took recently to meet with these farmers and talk to them about selling with Macienda. So the farmer partners that we work with are absolutely adamant against planting even hybrid seed, and uh, mm. not even to talk about GMO because they don't have access to it, but, but even hybrids, which is a, a, an option for them because they recognize that those seeds are completely void of flavor and aroma. A landrace or heirloom varietal is just so important to their tradition, culture, and a desire to eat a very delicious staple food. And now you can enjoy that delicious staple food product in your own home as well. We have the whole kernel grain available in bulk quantities as well as um, online. So if you wanted to mix to my a couple pounds of corn, that's, that's totally an option for you. I recommend it. It's a beautiful process. But we also have a line of tortillas that we make using heirloom corn as well as uh, mazarina which is a direct competitor, but another option to maseca or other industrial mascarinas on the market mm-hmm. because it's made using heirloom corn. And so the aroma, the flavor, the texture all come through. In addition to, to being able to connect with the farmer partners, one of the kind of most motivating parts about the work we do is connecting with people using it, whether it's a chef or my mom, friends, anyone that sends us kind of a message to say, I just tried your masa <laughs> and uh, kind of my, my life has changed. And Danielle says, there's just something wonderful about being able to look down at your plate and say, I made that. I have a fun fact for you. Kellogg, right? What do you think of when I say Kellogg? I think of that little, like, rooster. (laughs) Isn't that their, like, mascot? (laughs) I think of a bunch of different breakfast cereals and bars and stuff like that. Okay, well, what you should think about is corn, but... Understood. (laughs) I will tell you that in researching Kellogg, I learned about John Harvey Kellogg, the famous doctor behind this very profitable cereal brand. Um, and he's an interesting character. So I'm going to share some fun facts with you. Encyclopedia Britannica calls him a health food pioneer. We can question that later. But that's because he first developed corn-based cereals for his patients at Battle Creek Sanitarium, which was a sanitarium for the Seventh Day of Venice. It was a Seventh Day Adventist hospital that was turned into Battle Creek Sanitarium which is like this huge medicinal spa almost. Like it had a hotel in it. Like you didn't just go there because you were sick. You went there for treatments. It was America's most popular medical spa in the early 20th century, but he developed his own diet, kind of like Atkins, right? Eat these foods and you will feel better. And one of the main foods was cereal, something akin to cornflakes, something akin to grape nuts, which he would have his patients eat all the time. Wow. Fun fact to the side, one of those patients was a man named C.W. Post, who made another very (laughs) profitable cereal company inspired by what he ate at the Battle Creek Sanitarium. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. Okay, so 
Another fun fact, if you look up a picture of Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, he kind of looks like a very famous colonel of chicken. He's like dressed in all white. <laughs> he has like that mustache where it's like side swept, like it's so long he has to sweep it to the sides. Oh my gosh. Why is this so often the founder of like modern food? Why is that the person that we know and love? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And then he would he would walk around with a white cockatoo perched on his shoulder. Of course, because like... Uh, yeah, duh. Like, that's not weird. That's... I would do that. <laughs> so a lot of Kellogg's beliefs around his medicinal remedies, something he called biologic living, his zeal for wellness stemmed largely from his Seventh-day Adventist faith. He was kind of groomed by his church leaders to become a church leader himself. But then he wanted to go into medicine, but the church backed him anyways. A lot of his treatments were kind of grounded in religious tenets, of like dietary and sexual abstinence. He has a lot of ideas on how to stop masturbation, which I'm not gonna get into. With cereal? Not with cereal. <laughs> <laughs> that would be weird. Some other oh stuff. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but still, Kellogg was famous. Like, he was like a celebrity doctor. He served the medicinal needs of several U.S. presidents, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, Amelia Earhart, Sojourner Truth. Like, all these famous people went to Dr. Kellogg to get well. Wow. And he would try all kinds of stuff. Like, his cures were just experimental, if you want to say. So he had his usual regimen of, like, proper nutrition and exercise and better sleep. Like, you know, normal stuff that all, like doctors would tell you to do when you go for a checkup. There were some other goofier things. Um, one was you should chew more, right? If you ever, has your, have your parents ever told you to like chew your food a hundred times? 20. 20. Okay. That's a little bit less barbaric. A hundred is actually pretty insane. It would yeah. just be nothing at a certain point in your mouth. That's the idea. You early digest it. And so that your digestive system doesn't have such a troubling time. Wow. He even had a song. It was like, choo, choo, choo. That is the thing to do. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, those lyrics are just brilliant. I am very impressed. Right, no wonder. No wonder Henry Ford went to him. <laughs> um, he also believed in light baths. So he made this like coffin-like wooden cabinet that you would lay down in or you would sit down in and it, was, it had all these light bulbs in it. I don't know how it didn't get really hot, but you would go in there and you would have an electric light bath. Sounds like tanning. Yeah, sort of like tanning bed. So yeah, they're getting vitamin D. Of course, it made them feel better. Uh, he was a very big proponent of, again, digestive system health. Enemas were big. A lot of water. Enemas, yogurt enemas. <laughs> did you say enemas? I'm sorry. I couldn't really. Did, did you say it four four or five times? Hmm. You probably would get four or five times in one week if you were staying at the Battle Creek Sanitarium. Wow. Okay. Okay. And then the last one I will talk about is like he had a vibrating chair, which is kind of like a predecessor of a massage chair, except the only thing it does is just vibrate. Or like a vibrator, which he was against. So yeah. I don't really know what his plan is here. <laughs> and there was also uh, some less savory elements um, to this cornflake giant. He uh, 
co-founded a race betterment foundation, you know, an organization that promoted eugenics and racial segregation. So how did I know that was coming? I know, right? Like it was the suit. It was the cockatoo. It was the mustache. Like you look at it and you're just like, what? Have you ever seen Community? Yes. Yeah. He's like Pierce Hawthorne's father. Like he's probably wore wore that weird headpiece that looks like it's made of plastic. Oh, we can't get a cockatoo in time. That's okay. We'll we'll make a headpiece. It'll be all fine. Like what did all what did all the powerful white guys look like? Uh, like forty, hundred years ago? They're like perfect, perfect. Anyway, so that's that's all the fun fun facts about Kellogg. But the thing that is kind of worrisome about Kellogg now is that it's not really a health food. Cereal is not a health food any longer. It's mostly based around corn. I mean, if you think of Frosted Flakes, more than good, great. (laughs) That's what they tell you. But the product itself is built out of highly processed corn, the flake itself. And then on top of that flake, you're going to find a sugar coating, which... A lot of sugar coatings in cereals, in cereal bars, in Pop-Tarts, they're made from high fructose corn syrup, which we've all seen the ads is not good for you. Just because something's made from corn, I remember that ad, does not mean that it's good for you. But the process goes even further. They actually make preservatives and stabilizers from processed corn using the shell of the corn to produce other elements that are in that same Uh, processed cereal yeah so i don't know if we could herald kellogg anymore as a health food pioneer i mean he might have been in his day but there's question marks as to how much corn should be in your diet yeah definitely definitely question marks i don't know if i ever trusted this guy i think based on that story (laughs) i was never like this is a guy i should listen to (laughs) But I definitely don't trust him now. And I think we got to be wary about all the different places corn is in and like what that means, how much corn has to be produced for that, what that might mean about the production of corn, what that might mean about the quality of the production of corn. Like it just keeps going further and further and further and definitely something to think about. Um, have you ever read the collected short stories by Lydia Davis? Oh, yeah. I love her. She wrote about an old dictionary that she consults when she's writing. Okay, so I'm going to quote a little bit of it. She says, Its pages are brownish in the margins and very brittle and very large. I risk tearing them when I turn them. When I open the dictionary, I also risk tearing the spine, which is already split more than halfway up. I have to decide each time I think of consulting it whether it is worth damaging the book further in order to look up a particular word. So she starts comparing her care for her old dictionary to the care she provides for her son and for her plants. But for her son, she argues, he doesn't show how hurt he might be. He's not like outwardly brittle or not close to being torn like the pages. And when she interacts with him, she's not worried about how she'll damage him, you know, physically, as much as she is about her plants or her dictionary. She says maybe, I'm kinder to things that are not alive 
or rather, if they're not alive, there's no question of kindness. And she ends by saying, I handle the dictionary slowly, deliberately, and gently. I consider its age, I treat it with respect. I stop and think before I use it. I know its limitations. I do not encourage it to go farther than it can go. For instance, to lie open flat on the table. I leave it alone a good deal of the time. Do you ever feel like that with certain objects in your life? I feel like I've seen other people do that more than I do. I, if I go into my husband's grandmother's house, she has a second living room and you're not allowed to sit on the sofa. You are not supposed to touch anything. But because these objects have such great worth to her and they are old and fragile and meaningful, she takes good care of them. They have less use than Lydia Davis's dictionary. At least Lydia Davis can look up a word, right? That dictionary is tied to her livelihood. But this couch, no one sits on it. No one, right? And I'm a very practical person. So I'm like, you have a room no one's allowed to go into, right? What if we put fun stuff in here that people can use, right? But it's, it feels noble, that kind of care. Like you have these objects that mean so much to you. Yeah, there's kind of like a weird line with objects there, right? It's like kind of what I was talking about with Sandra. You know, she says like, it's good to care for your objects, but we don't have to be like precious about it. I think that's how she said it, you know? I have this old Dyson vacuum cleaner that kind of got damaged our last move in the moving truck. It kind of got squished between two pieces of heavy furniture. So it's a little wonky, but I thought about it and I was pushing it and I was just like, no, this is our vacuum cleaner. The handle doesn't quite go all the way in, right? It could be realigned, we could fix it, find someone who's better at it than me, get their help. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that that was a big takeaway from that interview too, is just seeing my things in a new light. It's like knowing that there's other things out there that are potentially and most likely better than what you have since things are always updating and improving. Like it's hard for you not to think about. And I mean, it's built that way. That's what Sandra talks about too. Like it's built so that we are always thinking of what's next, what's new, what, what else we can get. And we talked a lot about that like kind of planned obsolescence and I have a bit of an update on that. We talked about how like phones specifically are made to have kind of an endpoint. Like you just kind of know they're going to die so that you have to buy a new one at some point. Well, just recently, Apple put out their plans for their new service. I think it's called iFixit. And they're gonna send you different pieces to your phone that will make it um, fixable instead of one that you'll just throw away or sell back to them. Wait, your current them. phone or do you have to buy a new phone that's fixable? That's a good question. <laughs> I know that it hasn't been fully set into motion, so I'm sure we'll get more of the details later. But I do know that Apple refused to comment on this little aspect that some of the parts that they're selling might also have a sort of planned obsolescence. And so there might be a point when you can't get the parts for your phone because they phase that out as they're getting new phones and new parts for the new phones. I guess in this case, we have to choose whether we're gonna like celebrate like a tiny step forward or if we're gonna just ask for more, which I think maybe we can do both, right? Yeah. I think, I mean, that's what Smith Island is doing, right? Celebrate the little steps forward and keep thinking, like, what else, right? What, how yeah. can we live tomorrow? And in fact, 
Like there are bills in effect right now, like bills that are being proposed in multiple states that advocate for a competitive repair market. So Mm -hmm. that push manufacturers to make it possible for consumers and independent repair technicians to fix products. It has a lot to do with electronics, um, firmware access, all that kind of stuff, better knowledge of tools and repair and refurbished products. These these bills are just about creating an economy around extending the lifespan of manufactured goods. The thing that you were talking to Sandra about, like it's about fixing things, but also extending the life. I interviewed a few different people about different upcycling projects that kind of you know, remind me of this a little bit. There's this one person named Caroline um, Bond and she takes old clothing. People like donate it to her and such. And she like rips it into different, you know, shreds and then braids it into rugs, ties knots until they just look to like these beautiful rugs. Have you always been like artistically inclined or how did you come up with these ideas? I would say no. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not that creative. Mm-hmm. I don't quit things. <laughs> I love that. No, yeah, I mean, I definitely would say what I do isn't hard. Every time I sit someone down to teach them, like, what I do, they usually are successful. Just seeing what other people are doing, copy it or do it better to show off that, like, there isn't one way to do something. Mm-hmm. Like, we need all hands on deck, a bunch of people doing small things will trickle up. Caroline told me that upcycling isn't always the correct term. Upcycling is when you turn something with not much value into something with more value. In her case, clothing is always less valuable than when it was first made. So taking clothes and turning them into rugs is actually a down cycle. Caroline went on to say that preventing waste is best, but once it's here, what do we do with it? I've talked to Sarah, the upcyclist. She just takes a bunch of different, you know, curtains, different clothes, and she just makes them into like beautiful new clothes that she's excited to wear. Yes. And it's so, I mean, honestly, like if you crop a top and just do it with a straight stitch, you're going to think you're like Michelangelo. Right. (laughs) I did that. That's amazing. And you're you're literally going to wear that shirt to death because you did that. Like that's the cool thing about upcycling too. You know, like that's what I've been able to do is make it fun for myself, right? You know, it's um, it's it's not only sustainability, but it's like I get to craft. It, like you know, dealing with like depression throughout my life, it's mm. something that helps me to just like zone out. Mm-hmm. I guess to put it into good perspective, like I have not bought a new piece of clothing since like March 2013. I walked into an H&M with my sister because she needed something, and I. That old feeling that I used to get when I would walk into a store and be like, oh, I have to have this. Um, It was completely gone. Oh, interesting. And then there's just like a bunch of cool companies that are working. You know, there's this one 
It's called Our Restore. And then people can sign up. It's like Stitch Fix. So you, you get a box full of clothing that has been like curated to your style, but they do it using other people's clothes. It's like a clothing swap. You know, they're also planning on having like a group of upcyclers too, so that if something's brought in that can be repurposed, they'll do that and also put it in their in their bags. In college, I did a lot of thrift shopping. As I entered the workforce and having to go to a nine to five and dressing professionally all the time, um, it's kind of like I had to refresh my, my whole closet and I just started realizing like there's so much clothes and malls that is not being bought. And so I had this idea of just like not, and I was at the time doing a lot of research on this and following a lot of great um, influencers around slow fashion. So I kind of said, you know, I'm not going to spend, I'm not going to buy any new clothes. Um, I'm going to try to thrift all of it or, or do it in a way where it's more sustainable. And so I started meeting people, other women in D.C., and there was a lot of clothing swaps and meeting up at people's houses, and it was really fun. Like, it was fun exchanging clothes and connecting with other women who were also just starting out in their career. Mm -hmm. I found a co-founder from L.A., and she was very, she was very aligned into, um, you know, fashion and sustainability, and we were both on the same page. And so that's when we branded our Restore. And who was it that you talked to? Leohana Carrera from a company she founded called Our Restore. Oh yeah, I remember you told me about this, about how they started with a huge clothing swap in Petworth, but during the pandemic they moved to that Stitch Fix-like model. And then you told me about how she told you that DC pays around $200,000 to get clothes out of the city and to dump them at landfills. And so their whole idea is to change that system, to build a new process where the clothing doesn't go into another landfill, but it goes to people who really want them. A more sustainable clothing network. Everyone plays a role and we all wear clothes and what we wear and how we spend is also a political statement nowadays. Like, again, I feel like with all three episodes that we have done so far, Smith Island, Citrus Greening, GMOs, and then Upcycling, Mount Trashmore, it always comes back to this, like, big guy looming over everything. You know, there's, like, this one system. For Smith Island, it's, like, the oil, oil refineries and such that will not stop, and so climate change happens, takes out the island, right? For citrus screening GMOs, it's especially GMO. Big agribusinesses like Monsanto that are in charge, right? Like the scientists are doing what they can. The big guys in charge are the ones that are, you know, making things complicated. And then for trash, right? It's all these businesses. It's the oil business who makes plastic out of everything and makes us sell plastic. Like there's always just this thing looming over everything. And it's this invisible force. Invisible in the way that if something is so big, like if a spaceship landed outside of my house, but it was so big that all I could see was a minuscule part of one wall, I would cease to understand what truly it was. I could only see one piece of it. And that's how this problem becomes invisible. What we can see is ourselves though, right? We're the consumers and we're doing the right thing. We're pushing companies to change. Humans have done this since they've been workers inside of a big company, pushing for better labor laws, and now they're pushing for better environmental practices. It might not be the perfect solution right now, 
but it is what we can do with what we can see. Where are we going for the next couple episodes? Well, we head to Woodland Cemetery in Richmond. And I think we're headed up to some abandoned coal mines in Pennsylvania, which some people are working to clean and reclaim. And then I think we have some interesting stories coming out of the small wonder state, Delaware! (laughs) (laughs) We've changed the way we've been thinking. We've come back home, we've unpacked, and now we're ready. (laughs) Let's go. Next week, we take a break to prepare our next four episodes. Until you hear from us next, we're here. Thanks for listening. We owe a huge thank you to all the people who inspired our travel and all this unpacking who have helped us understand the places we've been, our homes, and beyond. To Michael Doctor and Danielle Dahlin, thank you for sharing the work and visions of your companies, me, Tarea, Tortillas, and Masienda. Listeners, if you want great masa, great tortillas, if you're salivating for them, check out the list of stores and vendors making these available in your area on our website, weareherepodcast.com. To the upcyclers, Caroline Bond, Liohana Carrera, and Sarah Foreman, Thank you for sharing some insights into your important work and re-envisioning what our stuff can become. This episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Abby Newhouse, and Melissa Wade. All sound effects and music not recorded by us come from Epidemic Sound. Learn more about this episode at our website, we'reherepodcast.com, on Instagram at we'rehere.podcast, and on Twitter at we underscore re here. 